1: Welcome to season two of Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how Hollywood uses history to talk about today.
2: I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. <laughs> Here in our final episode of the season, we're returning to one of the classics. In the spring of 1917, a revolution began in Russia with the mutiny of starving, poorly armed, and poorly clothed soldiers at the front. By the fall, a moderate revolution had given way to a radical revolution. And I think we can both agree it's difficult to identify a single geopolitical event since then that can't be traced back to the Russian Revolution.
1: But the meaning of the Russian Revolution and the meaning of America's opposition to the Soviet regime that followed has changed many times over the decades. The bipolar world order of the Cold War era looks pretty black and white. Starkly different political philosophies apparently underpinned that Manichaean worldview.
2: And as we know, the reality was very different. So the lies agreed upon in this episode are about how the United States has understood and treated the political philosophies of socialism and communism at different points in the hundred plus years since the Russian Revolution and how America's stance at any given time wasn't necessarily shared with the rest of the West.
1: Now, since the beginning of season one, we've talked about how Hollywood often reinforces historical lies by reverting to familiar narratives, oversimplifying historic events, or allowing one event to stand in for another. This week, however, we're looking at how, in both cases, our movies actually push back against those kinds of lies rather than reinforce them. Fifteen years apart, Dr. Zhivago and Reds both ask their audiences to follow complex stories that sweep across vast territories, and that refuse to fall into neat categories of good and evil.
2: So what are the lies that David Lean, by way of Boris Pasternak, and Warren Beatty, by way of John Reed, are refuting? Well, first of all, that the Russian Revolution was a calamitous and unwarranted defeat of democracy and capitalism. Next, that the Russian Revolution immediately and inevitably resulted in totalitarian dictatorship. And finally, following from that, that if A and B are true, then socialism offers no legitimate alternatives to capitalism, nor is it compatible with democracy.
1: (laughs) Now, that seems like a tall order to cover in one episode with two films. But trust us, looking at these films and the context within which they were made, will do most of the work for us. And as we always do, we'll start with a recap. Now, one of these films is 56 years old and the other is 40 years old, so we really aren't going to worry about any
2: spoilers. So let's start with Dr. Zhivago, which is incredibly beautiful. That is to say, visually stunning. And it was released in 1965 and directed by David Lean, The brilliant English director of such classics as Lawrence of Arabia, The Bridge on the River Kwai, and A Passage to India. A longtime collaborator, Robert Bolt, wrote the screenplay, which is adapting the 1957 novel by Russian author Boris Pasternak. The book was very popular in the West, uh, but as you might expect, banned in the Soviet Union for decades. Now, I guess the idea was to film it in the Soviet Union, but this wasn't possible although I was fooled because who knew there was that much snow in Spain.
1: The international cast is stellar, representing a who's who in cinema during this golden age of Hollywood. Omar Sharif is the titular character, Yuri Zhivago, and his star-crossed lover, Lara Antipova, is played by Julie Christie. Geraldine Chaplin is Tanya, Zhivago's long-suffering wife. Rod Steiger is the loathsome Viktor Komarovsky. Alec Guinness is Zhivago's long-lost half-brother comrade-general Yevgraf Zhivago. Tom Courtney is the Bolshevik purist Pasha, Lara's husband who later morphs into a cruel general known as Strelnikov. And there are other great performances by Ralph Richardson and Rita Tushingham.
2: It's surprising to read that critics weren't sold on Dr. Chivago when it first came out, but it is the eighth highest grossing film of all time in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, it won five Oscars, but lost most of the big ones to The Sound of Music. Some critics accuse it of trivializing history, which you know we will discuss, I'm sure. But to say the film holds up is an understatement. Dr. Chivago is 39th on the American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Films list, and the British Film Institute voted it the 27th greatest British film of all time.
1: The film is mostly set against a backdrop of World War I, then the Russian Revolution of 1917, and then the Russian Civil War, which lasted until about 1922. The first and last scene are narrative framing devices set in the 1950s, when Yevgorov Zhivago, who by this point is a senior Soviet official, is searching for the daughter of his deceased brother Yuri, Dr. Zhivago, and Lara. Yevgorov tracks her down and
2: begins to tell his niece her parents' story. And we are then treated to some gorgeous flashbacks of Yuri's life in rural Russia, then his young adulthood in turn-of-the-century Moscow, and then his experience as a doctor witnessing the horrific suffering of the Russian people during World War I. An orphan, Yuri is taken in by the Gromycos, wealthy family friends from Moscow. They educate Yuri to be a doctor and pair him off with their daughter, Tanya. His life seems set, but he is a poet at heart, and his well-planned life is derailed when he meets young Lara, a 17-year-old dressmaker who was victimized by her mother's influential consort, Viktor Komarovsky. Uh, She is also dating the idealistic socialist activist Pasha. These complicated relationships occur amid the backdrop of growing tensions in Russia as a small but vocal socialist movement challenges centuries of czarist rule. As we know, World War I topples the already fragile Romanov dynasty, throwing Russia into chaos and revolution for years.
1: After Yuri is drafted as a battlefield doctor, he encounters Lara, who he had admired only from a distance when he saw her in Moscow. After Pasha had joined the war, she volunteered as a nurse, and of course Yuri and Lara fall in love, but they stay true to their spouses, although Pasha at this point is feared dead. News of Lenin's return, the Tsar's abdication, the provisional governments, all of these seem very distant at first, but that will change dramatically.
2: Yes, it does change when Yuri returns to now-revolutionary Moscow. The Gromyko mansion is commandeered by the party, and the family lives in one room. Yuri is a romantic humanist, and he is drawn to the ideals of the revolutionaries but his proletariat neighbors and the increasingly intolerant and radical Bolshevik elite only see the family's privilege and wealth. Yuri's half-brother, Yavgrov, visits and warns Yuri to take the family to their dasha and wait out the chaos and violence in the countryside. They pack up and go on an amazing train ride, again visually beautiful, punctuated by the violence of the Civil War.
1: At one point along the journey,
2: Yuri meets Pasha,
1: Lara's husband, who is now Strelnikov, one of the leaders of the Bolshevik forces, who declares that Lara is better off thinking that he's dead. And we're going to play the clip of Yuri meeting Strelnikov because it gives you a sense of why Yuri's simple humanism is suddenly dangerous during the paranoid radical phase of the revolution.
3: Commander, I'm not a white agent. No, I don't think you are. All right, Collier. Thank you, comrades. Sit down, Doctor. Take it. It's not as silly as it seems. There have been one or two attempts. Are you the poet? Yes. I used to admire your poetry. Thank you. I shouldn't admire it now. I should find it absurdly personal. Don't you agree? Feelings, insights, affections, it's suddenly trivial now. You don't agree. You're wrong. The personal life is dead in Russia. History has killed it. I can see how you might hate me. I hate everything you say, but not enough to kill you for it. When you came in, you recognised me. How? Has someone shown you photographs? No. I am certain that you recognised me. I've seen you before, Commander. When? Six years ago. Go on. Christmas Eve, you... You were there? Or has someone told you this? I attended to the man who was injured by your wife. Why do you call her my wife? I met her again. We served together on the Ukrainian front if she's with you i'm sure she'd vouch for me i haven't seen her since the war she's in yuriatin yuriatin the private life is dead for a man with any manhood
2: yeah i think that line the personal life is dead in russia history has killed it is important now there's always a lot of talk about history in the film's as episode now that's what you know communism and bolshevism Our worship history, and as we see, that history has a way of of breaking through the uh, artificial bounds of ideology in both these films.
1: At the end of this epic train journey, Yuri and his family settle down in the cottage next door to the giant Dasha, Uh, and then Yuri begins to travel into the local town where, as if by fate, he meets Lara and they begin a passionate love affair that is then interrupted by the civil war that emerges out of the revolution. Yuri is kidnapped for two years and forced back into service as a doctor. Horrified by what he sees, he deserts and eventually finds that his family has fled to Paris He's relieved that they're safe and also that he can now return to Lara. But their pasts catch up to them when Victor shows up to warn them that they are both in danger. Lara for being Strelnikov's widow, because Strelnikov is now on the enemy list, a clear case of the revolution eating their own, and Yuri because of his poetry, which was once deemed idealistic and populist, but is now too bourgeois and personal. They are forced to split up, but Lara is pregnant.
2: The tragic story ends years later when Yuri dies of a heart attack after running to try and catch Lara when he sees her on a Moscow street, not unlike the first time he saw her decades earlier. We also learn Lara perishes in a Stalinist gulag. The final scene takes us back to Yevgrav speaking with their daughter, his niece, Tanya, who may have no memory of her parents, but seems to have Yuri's artistic spirit.
1: Released 16 years later, Reds is also the story of a man and a woman who were sympathetic to the revolution, but became casualties of its radical phase. Another three and a half hour long epic drama, Reds covers the lives and careers of journalists and writers John Reed and Louise Bryant. Reed was an avowed communist activist and author of the amazing first-hand account of the Russian Revolution, Ten Days That Shook the World. Reds is Warren Beatty's baby. He co-wrote it, produced it, directed it, and he stars in it, along with pretty much every other great actor he knew at the time. Beatty won the Academy Award for Best Director, but Reds lost the Best Film Award to Chariots of Fire. A number of cast members, Beatty included, were nominated for acting awards, but only Maureen Stapleton won for her role as anarchist, political philosopher and writer,
2: Emma Goldman. And let's just look in awe at this cast. We can imagine Beatty just calling up his buddies and saying, hey, want to make this movie with me? So, So Beatty is John Reed but I found that Diane Keaton's Louise Bryant stole the film as Reed's companion and eventually wife. Uh, the character evolved into a fiercely independent talent in her own right. Uh, we have Jack Nicholson as playwright Eugene O'Neill, Edward Herman, Richard Gilmore, or FDR, if you prefer that reference himself, as writer and activist Max Eastman. We mentioned Maureen Stapleton as Emma Goldman. Jersey Kaczynski, the author of Being There, which had just been adapted brilliantly for the screen by Hal Ashby a couple of years earlier, plays one of the original Bolsheviks and Lenin associate Grigory Zinoviev. There are some other noteworthy appearances by young Paul Servino, young M. Emmett Walsh, George Plimpton, and William Daniels, who was John Adams in 1776, if you remember, but here plays a leader of the American Communist Party. Even Gene Hackman plays a cantankerous New York publisher for about 30 seconds. Like we said, it's a who's who of Warren Beatty's Rolodex.
1: Most effective, though, really, are the appearances of real-life witnesses to the era and to the lives of Reed and Bryant. Their memories of the events on screen are interspersed throughout the film, and It's really a brilliant idea of Beatty's uh, and probably one of the things that that got him that best directing Oscar. Uh, It lends the story some real authenticity and immediacy. Some of the some of the witnesses also are people that that um, are quite well known, Uh, radical writer and activist Scott Nearing, suffragist Dorothy Frux. Roger Baldwin, one of the founders of the ACLU, and writer Henry Miller. I even caught comic actor George Jessel, if you can believe that.
2: Right. The point of the interviews is to highlight just how dynamic and close-knit the community of artists and activists living in Greenwich Village was in the 1910s and 20s. And also, crucially, to remind Americans that this era was not so far gone, that there were still living witnesses to it and that to be a communist, or at least a socialist, or a labor leader, was neither rare nor outlandish. Uh, 1917 was a moment when liberal democracy was really only just getting started in many countries, and was still in the future for others.
1: Reds begins in Portland, Oregon in 1915, where we meet Louise Bryant suffocating in a bourgeois marriage. She's an artist, a writer, uh, wants to be a journalist, but Her ambitions are thwarted so far from the action. John Reed, a socialist journalist, comes around to preach an anti-war message and encourages Louise to come to New York, and she takes him up on it. But she gets dropped into this intimidating world of more accomplished figures feeding off of each other's talent, and initially she's seen as just another Reed conquest. And so it takes a bit for Louise to to fight to establish her own voice and become more of Reed's equal
2: than simply a consort. As Reed gets drawn further into anti-war activism and socialist party politics, Bryant has an affair with Eugene O'Neill, played memorably by Jack Nicholson, in an understated performance. Um, And she gains uh, confidence in her own work. When the U.S. gets into the war, Louise travels to France and becomes a war correspondent, while Reed remains in the United States. Uh, Reed comes looking for her eventually and convinces her to go with him to Moscow and report on the revolution they have all been hoping for.
1: And we get a great montage uh, of them in Russia reporting on the revolution that, that really illustrates and captures the intoxication of the moment what you're hearing in this clip is is them in voiceover reading the dispatches that they are frantically writing for whatever papers back in the united states that will take their copy
4: in the streets, the talk is of peace and bread, neither of which Kerensky has provided. Everybody knows that
5: something is going to happen, but nobody knows just what.
0: Petrograd does not sleep. At night, the arguments grow louder, the crowd's thicker. Nobody thickens. is
5: satisfied with Kerensky. The far right wants a strong man, the far left wants peace. Everyone waits to see what the Bolsheviks will do. It is do. not easy to
0: write fairly about the Bolshevik leader, Lenin. He is absorbed, cold, impatient patient of interruptions. Mr. Zinoviev, do you still feel that
4: the
3: timing
0: is wrong for a Bolshevik interruption? I interviewed Zinoviev at Smolny. He had been in hiding with Lenin.
3: another a whole decade, less than a day.
0: His style is still that of a man in hiding. We heard Trotsky speak at Smolny. If Lenin represents thought, Trotsky represents action. He is essentially they an agitator. Smolny was
5: packed. At one point, someone on the platform asked the comrades not to smoke, and everybody, including the smokers, took up the cry, "Don't smoke, comrades!" And then they went on smoking. At one
0: point, Trotsky said we are trying to avoid insurrection, but if the Kerensky government attacks us, we shall answer blow by blow. The audience broke into wild cheers.
2: Yeah, and I think you can, you can tell, unlike the journalists we discussed in earlier episodes, Reed and Bryant see their journalism as having a very specific and necessary political agenda.
1: But Reed, who's one of the few Americans in the country at the time, is more than just a journalist here. He becomes part of the revolution, speaking at rallies, preaching U.S. workers' solidarity with the new regime. And as we watch the Kerensky government fall apart and the Bolsheviks rise, we also see Reid hobnobbing with Lenin and Trotsky. But he's still an American following an American agenda. And so he's about getting the Comintern, newly formed, to sign off on his pet project, which is the recognition and therefore validation of the breakaway Communist Labor Party of
2: America. Louise Bryant is back in the U.S., facing the wrath of a government pushing the post-World War I Red Scare pretty hard. Reed is already charged with sedition, and Louise is suspected of it as well. Congress clearly doesn't understand the Bolshevik Revolution and calls Louise forward to testify, both because she was a witness, but also because they want to silence and intimidate any socialist voices. So there's a great clip we have that is the exchange between Louise Bryant and some senators at a hearing that is really supposed to be just, you know, what's happening in Russia. But clearly you can see it's, it's a, also an attack and, and, uh, on Louise and those who might have some sympathy for social politics anywhere in the world. Are you a Christian?
4: I was christened in the Catholic Church.
2: Well, are you a Christian now?
4: I suppose I am.
6: Do you believe in our Lord Jesus Christ?
4: I believe in the teachings of Christ. Am I being tried for witchcraft?
6: Miss Brown, tell me. Are there no decent, God-fearing Christians among the Bolsheviks?
4: Does one have to be God-fearing and Christian to be decent? Senator, the Bolsheviks believe that it's religion, particularly Christianity, that's kept the Russian people back for so many centuries. Miss Brown, If any of you had ever been to Russia and seen the peasants, you might think they had a point. On the subject of decency, Senator, the Bolsheviks took power with the slogan, an end to the war. Within six months, they made good their promise to the Russian people. Now, the present president of the United States of America went to this country in 1916 on a no-war ticket. Within six months, he'd taken us into the war, and 115,000 young Americans didn't come back. That's how decent, God-fearing Christians behave. Give me atheists any time. By the way. Russia women have the vote, which is more than you can say for this country. Miss
6: Prague, do you advocate a Soviet government for this country?
1: No, in this country, I don't think it would work. And she's right on a number of fronts, but particularly about how ludicrous it is to imagine that a Soviet-style government is going to somehow pop up and work in the United States of America.
2: Yes, this is something that Reed himself never Quite disbelieves. Uh, he does go back to Russia and tries to represent American communists, but as we noted, winds up staying and working for the new propaganda department. Reed is also struggling with a kidney ailment that is progressively getting worse. And if you want to get a sense of just how unhinged Reed has become, adopting some of the worst parts of the Bolshevik platform, consider this argument with his friend, Emma Goldman. She also goes to Russia hoping to see a glorious revolution unfold. But the Civil War and its aftermath, uh, she notes, empowers the violent and, impress- and oppressive elements over any idealists.
0: If Bolshevism means the peasants taking the land, the workers taking the factories, Russia is one place where there's no Bolshevism. The Soviets have no more local autonomy. The central state has all the power. All the power is in the hands of a few men, and they are destroying the revolution. They are destroying any hope of real communism in Russia. My understanding of revolution is not a continual extermination of political dissenters. And I want no part of it. Every single newspaper has been shut down or taken over by the party. Anyone even vaguely suspected of being a counter-revolutionary... ...can be taken out and shot without a trial. Where does that end? Is any nightmare justifiable in the name of defense against counter-revolution?
5: You sound like you're a little confused by the revolution in action, E.G. Up to now, you've only dealt with it in theory. What did you think this thing was gonna be? A revolution by consensus? Where we all sat down and agreed
0: over a cup of coffee? Nothing works! Four million people died last year, not from fighting a war. They died from starvation and typhus in a militaristic police state that suppresses freedom and human rights where nothing works. They died because of a French, British, and
5: American blockade that cut off all food and medical supplies and because counter-revolutionaries have sabotaged the factories and the railroads and the telephones and because the people, the poor, ignorant, superstitious, illiterate people are trying to run things themselves, just as you always said that they should but they don't know how to run them yet. Did you really think things were gonna work right away? Did you really expect social transformation to be anything other than a murderous process? It's a war, E.G., and we gotta fight it like we fight a war with discipline, with terror, with firing squads, or we just give it up.
1: As harsh as Reed sounds there, he actually is kind of right. I mean, the Bolshevik Revolution is not what anyone planned for, but it happened the way it happened. It can only work with an enormous body count. And Red's is interesting in part because it really shows how disconnected Greenwich Village activism can be from the reality of a revolution as complex and violent as the Bolshevik takeover of a backwards agrarian empire. I mean, <laughs> what do these overeducated write- writers and, and playwrights have in common with you know pez- peasants in, in Baku?
2: Yeah, and Reed is actually he he gives it the good old college try trying to make himself relevant to those peasants out in the outer reaches of the old empire. It's that's another beautiful scene. But Reed, you know, he does himself get a little disillusioned, but mostly because he can't be in charge of the American communists. Like that's what drives him over the wall, not oppression. And he does try to leave Russia. He foolishly tries to walk to Finland where he is detained for over a year and getting sicker. While Louise, always loyal to him, moves heaven and earth to save him. While she's out trying to get to Finland, he's released in 1920, goes back to Russia, but his spotted typhus diagnosis is only getting worse. By the time Louise sees him in Moscow in the final moments of the film, Reed is on his last legs. She cares for him in a kind of dingy hospital, but Reed dies soon after their reunion. And it's important to remember, Reed is just one of three Americans buried in the Kremlin.
1: Some Americans today are obsessed with the apparent threat of socialism. This hysteria, ironically, has actually increased since the collapse of the Eastern Bloc rather than decreased. So it's really interesting to watch these two movies, both made during particularly hot phases of the Cold War. In fact, it's downright disorienting because in both films, the arguments being made by critics of capitalism or critics of dynastic imperialism are, quite frankly, treated as shock, perfectly legitimate ones.
2: Yes, and as the kids say today, it's complicated. And a common development after revolutions and particularly after revolutions that are then attacked from without, the doctrine of communism is gradually co-opted to become the cover story for authoritarianism. The goals of the revolution, an end to private property and the control of the means of production by the proletariat, are replaced by a regime that claims to act on behalf of of revolutionary ideals, but in an emergency capacity.
1: Socialism, which seeks to create a more just and equitable distribution of wealth, And greater control of the means of production by the people, but through democratic processes, is on the same spectrum as classic communist ideology, but it isn't the same. And this is a really important thing to note because social democracy in varying forms actually took firm root in the democracies of the West in the 20th century, except
2: the United States. And this is what takes us back to our films. They are both a product of writers and directors who possess a particularly common worldview in most of the West, that there are complex variations in versions of socialist and communist philosophy. And as a political and economic philosophy, it can coexist with democracy. But, you know, mainstream American Cold War culture,
1: and certainly even more so since then, it just wasn't and isn't interested in parsing those details. So how did these movies get made? And what was going on at the time? As always, we want to locate our films in their historical moment so that we can better understand the choices
2: that were made. Well, Pasternak's novel was published in 1957 after being banned from publication in the Soviet Union. Always up for making political statements while claiming they are apolitical, the Nobel Committee promptly bestowed the Nobel Prize for Literature on Pasternak in 1958. He was forced to refuse it, and so the novel and Pasternak became cause celebs in the West, particularly the U.S.
1: But again, it's complicated. The book was published by a press that was run by the Italian Communist Party, not by some bastion of the New York publishing world. And Pasternak himself, given many opportunities over the decades since the revolution, had always steadfastly remained in communist Russia. He was not a dissident, nor was his book a critique of communism in the way that it was portrayed and championed by the West.
2: No, and not surprisingly, he and Yuri shivago have a lot in common, They valued individual idealism, which put them on the wrong side of the party. But they both believed in the ideals of socialism. That means a more equitable society where the dignity of the individual was valued. And considering his background and the projects he gravitated to, David Lean likely did too.
1: Yes, I mean, we can look at David Lean's films today, and there are problematic things that we could focus on, like Alec Guinness in Brownface playing an Indian in Passage to India and an Arab in Lawrence of Arabia. But the empathetic treatment of the female and Indian protagonists in Passage and the respect and time given to the Pan-Arab movement that Lawrence championed suggests that he had deeper and, again, more
2: complex sympathies. The Britain of the post-World War II era took a very different path in America. Victory in the war and prosperity after it led Americans to adopt a syllogism that the nation was successful because it was righteous and the proof of its righteousness was its success. Although we know now that the post-war era was one of strong union membership and progressive taxation that funded a vibrant civic life, the bipolar logic of the Cold War led Americans to think of their country as a negation of the Soviet Union.
1: Exactly. And then Britain, on the other hand, responded to the destruction of the war with a commitment to a cradle-to-grave social welfare system. Immediately after the war, under the new Labour government, the nation took action based on a report written by Sir William Beveridge in 1942. Here we have him explaining the findings of his report and the recommendations of how the country should proceed in the post-war era.
6: As the result of much intensive study into questions of social security, Sir William Beveridge is the recognized authority on present day and post-war problems. Following upon the publication of his report, Sir William summarizes the points of his plan. The security plan in my report has three sides to it. First, an all-in scheme of social insurance, providing for all citizens and their families all the cash benefits needed for security. The benefits are to be adequate in amount and to last as long as the need lasts. Second, a scheme of children's allowances to be paid both when the responsible parent is earning and when he is not earning third, an all-in scheme of medical treatment of all kinds for all citizens. The national minimum is a peculiarly British idea. It means that no one is to fall below a certain standard. It leaves everyone free to spend his income above that standard as he will. It preserves the maximum of individual freedom and responsibility that is consistent with the abolition of want.
2: And this sort of cradle to grave welfare state was common on the European continent, generally speaking. So what we see in David Lean being attracted to Pasternak's story is a sympathy for the ideals that drove the Russian Revolution and a fascination for the possibilities of good and evil on all sides of an incredibly complicated revolutionary era.
1: Yeah, and Warren Beatty was never afraid to splash his political and social views onto the screen, and he definitely used his talents and his uh, emerging gravitas in the service of a film that most Americans would likely go out of their way to avoid if it were not for the amazing cast he put together. I mean, we have to remember that this is the Warren Beatty of uh, Shampoo, right? But here he is in the in the later years of the nineteen seventies, obviously putting this, you know, creating this baby of his, and then finally having it um, uh, released. Months into the Reagan presidency, a true watershed moment in American politics that um, that represent an escalation in the Cold War. So, a biopic about an avowed American communist who's buried at the Kremlin is uh, definitely a statement film, uh, no doubt. And particularly coming from someone like Warren Beatty.
2: Yes, and we have to say Warren Beatty. You know, did not come up with this on his own. Uh, Reds was based on a book written by a pioneer in the field of film and history, Robert Rosenstone. Rosenstone wrote John Reed, Romantic Revolutionary, in 1975, and he served as a historical consultant for Beatty on Reds. Using this experience, um, working on a film set, Rosenstone began to advocate that historians take the moving image as a source seriously, and that in turn filmmakers take historians seriously. So in 1989, um, Rosenstone was asked to create a film section for the American Historical Association, which is notoriously conservative. Uh, So it was a big victory. He really is a pioneer in this field. So anyone interested in the discipline of film and history, of which we are contributing, I hope, start with Robert Rosenstone's History on Film, Film on History, where he uses Reds as a case study on how to merge really the scholarship that historians do with what Hollywood does.
1: So let's look back at this precarious time of the early 1980s, right after Reagan's election. At this point, we are decades into the Cold War. And so we're past the point of having a red scare of the sort that happened immediately after the Russian Revolution with Jack Reed and Louise Bryant, or the red scare that happened after the end of World War II, when the Soviet Union and the United States, not shockingly to many, ended up becoming enemies after having been allies in the war, we have Still, at the time of the Reagan administration beginning, a cultural shift that turns very sharply to the right, and that it was really palpable in politics, but also in Hollywood. After all, Hollywood is about pandering to whatever are the social mores of an era, And the Reagan revolution seemed to really have the upper hand. Remember that this is the era of the Arnold Schwarzenegger films and Sylvester Stallone and Chuck Norris. This is when we've got movies about killing commies, refighting Vietnam and winning, unrepentant nationalism, evil empire rhetoric. Hollywood didn't care what its politics were as long as the box office was happy.
2: Yeah, and it even drills down a little further. You know, on television, the small screen, you had you know, the, the really popular series Family Ties that signaled the social idealism of the 60s was giving way. You, know, you have the, the hippie parents raising Alex P. Keaton, young Republican, and he was beloved And of course, President Reagan, who cooperated with McCarthy during the second Red Scare and his role as a president of the Screen Actors Guild, um, was signaling the end of 60s idealism, even while the 60s were still ongoing.
1: Yeah, let's uh, refresh our memories, at least for some of us old enough to actually remember this as opposed to hearing it for the first time, to get a sense of the cultural zeitgeist by playing a bit of Reagan's evil empire speech.
5: Yes, let us pray for the salvation of all of those who live in that totalitarian darkness. Pray they will discover the joy of knowing God. But until they do, let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man, and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, they are the focus of evil in the modern world. But because these quiet men do not raise their voices, because they sometimes speak in soothing tones of brotherhood and peace, because like other dictators before them they're always making their final territorial demand, some would have us accept them at their word and accommodate ourselves to their aggressive impulses. But if history teaches anything, it teaches that simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. It means the betrayal of our past, the squandering of our freedom. So I urge you to speak out against those who would place the United States in a position of military and moral inferiority. So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely declaring yourselves above it all, and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil.
2: Yes. I mean, it's, it's the focus of evil in the modern world. So Hollywood's going to run with that. But Reds, uh, as we've shown, gives you the whole spectrum. The idealism behind the revolution was genuine and given the regime it overthrew, warranted. But Reds also shows the brutality and oppression resulting from the Civil War, mass starvation, and what happens when outside forces tried to, des- to destroy a revolution in the cradle. Reagan's America had no interest in this subtlety.
1: And so let's review our lies to refute before getting into some more topics.
2: First, that
1: the Russian Revolution was a disaster and posed an immediate and sustained threat to democracy and capitalism. Next, that the Russian Revolution immediately and inevitably resulted in a totalitarian dictatorship, as if Stalin was just right around the corner from the get-go. And finally, following from that, that if lies one and two are true, then socialism offers no legitimate alternatives to capitalism, nor is it compatible with democracy.
2: One of the things I I was really interested in 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 both films is it gets to this Bolshevik concept of of history, which of course begins with Marx. Now, history as a force that basically replaces God. Communism will conquer history and every temporary setback or tragedy, even monumental loss of life can be forgiven if it moves history along the correct path. And you see that idea play out differently in both films, but it certainly connects them.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that whole um, sequence in Dr. Zhivago, where we see the impact of the revolution on all of these villages that the train is passing by as Yuri and his family are heading to the Dasha, it both reinforces how miserable these peasants' lives were before the revolution, and then also illustrates... Just how much upheaval there is as a result of the revolution. We sort of get both of those in this in this journey, and that's one of the ways in which uh, it's interesting to look at that that lie this this idea that the Russian Revolution was somehow a threat and an enemy to democracy and capitalism, when you know both of these movies remind us that there was no democracy and there was no capitalism in place in this tired, corrupt, and sort of completely um, uh, unjust imperial Russia that existed before the
2: revolution. Right. and that, Exactly. And I think we have the person who's supposed to embody the revolution and where it goes wrong in Shivago is Pasha. You know, he's, he, he starts out, it's kind of severe but he's an idealist and you, you don't quite um maybe not you don't like him but you can maybe respect his his uh his idealism but then he evolves into this this horrible general character and when he's speaking with um shivago and he, he notes so he he just kind of admits yeah we massacred the wrong town my pasha brushes it off as a victory for history nonetheless you know the lesson has been demonstrated whether it was the, this town or that town and and so you get the sense of how, how severe and cruel one strain of the revolution has become as a result of having to fight for its life, uh, and that's unfortunately kind of where it stays for a, a period. And then another side of that concept of history mattering more than anything else is comes at the beginning when Al Guinness is speaking to this engineer that is employing uh, Tanya, and uh, he's complaining about needing more machines instead of just using human labor. And uh, that, that would make things go faster. Um, and the Guinness character just says, look, you're an impatient generation. And that gets to the their whole mentality that things will work out in the end. Communism will be at the end of history. So let it happen. And I think that's a, some subtle ways this very entertaining love story inserts really fascinating details about Communist ideology.
1: Yeah, and on the other side, it embodies the corruption of the of the old regime in uh, Komarovsky, who, in his entitlement and his disregard for the the human beings that he treats so carelessly, we see the, you know, the imperial uh, state that existed before. Um, The way he treats both Lara's mother and then Lara as really these kinds of, of possessions that he can do with as he wishes, but where he still, much like any kind of sort of corrupt regime, still likes to... Imagine for himself that he somehow loved, and so you know. I'm sure this is coming out of Pasternak's novel, but the uh, Komarovsky character really does this a, a great job of kind of embodying the corruption and delusion of the old
2: regime. Yeah, he's also very much proof that that there are some people who will survive any circumstance and the rotten apples will float to the top. And he is exactly that. In any bureaucracy, you'll find people like Komoroski. And he's proof of that as well. Um, in Reds, you know, Reed kind of conflates history with his making, with making his own mark in on history. Uh, he will abandon Louise and even the revolution at one point when the Comintern refuses his request to lead the American communists. And you know, he just walks off to Finland because they're not giving in to him. Um, Louise, Emma Goldman, and some other American activists know that history is contingent, which is why Louise can tell Congress that Bolshevism in an American context makes no sense. But at the same time, uh, as many of the witnesses on the screen do, these real life people that are in the film, it was perfectly reasonable and rational to try and find a different version of social justice in the United States.
1: Yeah, I'd like to talk for a minute more about those those um, real life people that, that he inserts there. I think it really is brilliant in, you know, 1980 America to have these people that really reinforce the notion that this was not so long ago. The United States in the early decades of the 20th century Uh, And then certainly going into the crisis of the depression, there were a lot of people who really couldn't easily see that liberal democracy was going to be the answer to the problems of the, the poor and the disenfranchised. And, and there's also some, some British uh, uh, um, talking heads here as well. So this, this idea that that these communities and these people across many nations found many of these ideas quite reasonable
2: right and even though it's this moment of of a reagan revolution and there really was a revolution we have to, where we also have to remember that many many blue collar workers Voted for him. It reminds you that there's still a powerful strain of labor activism in the United States, and these were some of the originators of it, uh, and that they were still alive. And yes, they they've lived through you know much, and you can tell through on their faces that they have. But it, it's such a it, it was great to go back and watch the film, and and be reminded of that because it's so hard to imagine, no matter whether it's a Democratic or Republican president these days, that there used to be a thing called organized labor that could promote social change and ensure the values of, of workers were respected and protected, because that's certainly not the case, no matter the administration in the last uh, generation, you could say.
1: And and actually, that were a really good point to kind of tie this historical moment with the historical moment within which uh, David Lean is choosing to make Doctor Zhivago is that in the mid sixties in uh, in Britain the the promise of that social welfare state really seems to be being realized because the affluence of you know the 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 swinging sixties the emergence out of the era of of. Um, austerity and um, sacrifice with rationing and all of these things that continued. Actually, I mean, most American listeners probably aren't aware that, you know, rationing in Britain continued into the fifties because Britain had so much war debt that it chose to continue rationing in its own nation so that it could prioritize paying off its its debts to other nations most notably the United States and so uh, there is this this pent-up uh, affluence where people are earning good money unions are strong everybody's employed but they actually don't have a lot to spend their money on until the 60s and then, the uh, economy sort of is, or the late 50s, and the economy is sort of exploding. So the the Britain of, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and Carnaby Street and, uh, you know, all of this, this kind of cool Britannia of the 60s is a testament to the success of the social welfare state. And so this movie that is kind of unproblematically sympathetic not to the totalitarian regime that eventually emerges in Russia but to the socialist promise that is makes perfect sense that that movie uh, would emerge out from a british director and a british screenwriter in the mid 1960s.
2: Yes, and in the way to contrast that there's uh, uh, there's something very American about Reds and as you know very Russian about Doctor Shivago. but let's start with Reds because it is, you know, a different sentimentality than than Shivago. because in Reds the hero is a man who believes he can shape history that you know he can do anything and he will be welcome a welcome and valuable addition to the cause. And as viewers, we are at the center of the struggle for the soul of the Bolshevik Party, but through his eyes. Um, and we see that John Reed believes he was vital to the course of the Russian Revolution, to the shape of communism in America. And and that is, I think, very American and individualistic. And I have to say that you know we have to give Warren Beatty some credit here because he's not creating a totally Sympathetic character here. He's he. There's a lot to dislike about John Reed, and and to on the other hand admire about Louise Bryant. It's interesting how he's able to um, complicate uh, John Reed the person by making him not very sympathetic in ways, and and showing that to be so focused on the individuals is is against the grain of what. What socialism could be?
1: Yeah, and and I I agree with you that as 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 American as Reds and the story of John Reed is that Doctor Zhivago is uh, very Russian. In in Zhivago, history is something that randomly and destructively intersects with people's lives, and we really get a sense of the vastness of the struggle because seems to keep crashing into the lives of our lovers. They never seek it out the way that John Reed does. You know, the viewer experiences World War I, the Russian Revolution, the subsequent white and red Russian Civil War, and the results of Soviet forced progress through to the 1950s through these characters intersecting with it. And at the end of the movie, at the very end, what we see is this young woman who is Yuri and Lara's daughter. And the last shot is her dwarfed by this monumental dam that she works at as she walks away with a balalaika, much like her father had slung over her shoulder. And history looms over her, but she also carries a small bit of it with her.
2: So this will be our, our last recommendations for the season as well. And what can we say? These are both very beautiful, important gorgeous films to watch in different ways, wonderful acting. Uh, I don't need to convince you. Just look at where they show up on the best films of all time list. So I, I think it's, their are movies well known to our audiences, but maybe with the historical background and context, you can appreciate them on a different level.
1: Yeah. I mean, certainly uh, I think here, our job might be more to convince uh, people that they should take the time to watch to such very long films, and uh, you really should. Uh, we would recommend, treat it, treat it like a, a, a short miniseries instead. Uh, watch it in installments. Uh, but both of these, and uh, uh, I would say probably just because I've got a soft spot in my heart for it, but particularly Dr. Zhivago, because it is just so beautiful. Uh, it's such a beautiful movie to to look at. Uh, and so we interestingly end with two films about a, a, a brutal uh, revolution and its aftermath by saying that the two movies about it are beautiful to look at and warrant your uh, attention. So I guess mm-hmm. this is it for season two, Brian.
2: Yes, I can safely guarantee there'll be a season three, but we're not going to tell you when or what it's going to be. (laughs) You have to wait and find out.
1: But thank you for joining us again for this season of episodes. uh, And we hope that you've enjoyed listening to them as much as we've enjoyed making them.
2: This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was also edited by Leah. And the theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website, livesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode, including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at livesagreedupon. That's at lies underscore upon.